Good morning. Scripture reading this morning is from James chapter 2, verses 14 to 26. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. This is the word of the Lord. Buenos días. La lectura de hoy viene de Santiago, capítulo 2, versículo 14 al 26. Hermanos míos, ¿de qué le sirve a uno alegar que tiene fe si no tiene obras? ¿Acaso podrá salvarlo esa fe? Supongamos que un hermano o una hermana no tiene con qué vestirse y carece del alimento diario, y uno de ustedes le dice que le vaya bien, abríguese y coma hasta saciarse, pero no le da lo necesario para el cuerpo. ¿De qué servirá eso? Así también la fe por sí sola, si no tiene obras, está muerta. Sin embargo, alguien dirá, tú tienes fe y yo tengo obras. Pues bien, muéstrame tu fe sin las obras y yo te mostraré la fe por mis obras. ¿Tú crees que hay un solo Dios? Magnífico. También los demonios lo creen y tiemblan. ¿Qué tonto eres? ¿Quieres convencerte de que la fe sin obras es estéril? ¿No fue declarado justo nuestro padre Abraham por lo que hizo cuando ofreció sobre el altar a su hijo Isaac? Ya lo ves, su fe y sus obras actuaban conjuntamente y su fe llegó a la perfección por las obras que hizo. Así se cumplió la escritura que dice, le creyó Abraham a Dios y esto se lo tomó se le tomó en cuenta como justicia y fue llamado amigo de Dios. ¿Cómo pueden ver a una persona se le declara justa por las obras y no solo por la fe? De igual manera, no fue declarada justa por las obras aún la prostituta Rahab cuando hospedó a los espías y les ayudó a huir por otro camino. Pues como el cuerpo sin espíritu está muerto, así también la fe sin obras está muerta. La palabra del Señor. Thank you, hermano Elmer and sister Rachel. We're continuing 
in our study of the book of James, moving ahead in the second chapter. And so let's turn our attention now to God's word. Let me pray together first. Let's pray. Jesus, we pray with thanksgiving in our hearts, anticipating what you're going to reveal to us, anticipating that you will teach us, anticipating that you will be present in your word at this time. We pray that you would open our hearts, our lives to you. We pray that you would glorify yourself in this time. We need you, Lord Jesus. Please come. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, to start, here's another story from the Kwan family background, I mean backyard, this summer. Another story from our backyard. Recently, we planted a, a, a small shrub with little pretty purple flowers. We placed two of these little plants, one on the left, one on the right, on a little rock-enclosed planter near to the ground. And at first, both of these shrubs, they both looked delightful, purple little accents amid an assortment of colors, pinks and greens, lots of life. But soon we began to notice that while the plant on the right continued to flourish, doing well, the plant on the left, we found, wasn't doing so well. The leaves turned brown. And the purple petals just shriveled. No longer purple, now also brown. It was a, a sad sight to see. Now one of these little shrubs was full of life and the other one was dying. In fact, it was probably dead. And how do we know dead? Well, we didn't send it to some kind of a botanical laboratory, get it analyzed, we just noticed that its purple flower petals, once pretty, were now parched. See, the flowers told the story because normally a living plant sprouts lively leaves and flowers, don't they? It was time to get a new shrub. Well, similarly, James teaches us a similar kind of thing about the nature of spiritual life and health in this morning's passage. A life of love and good deeds is the fruit of genuine faith in Christ. A growing faith, kind of like flower petals. That means if faith is not marked by a visible pattern of energetic deeds of love, of kindness, of truth. That is, if its flower petals are parched, as it were, then that faith is not healthy, that, that faith is not growing, that, that faith is not mature, that faith may not be alive. Because here's the principle that James is trying to teach us. Just like a living shrub sprouts lively flowers and leaves, a living faith always sprouts loving deeds. 
A living faith always sprouts loving deeds. First, let me show you how exactly this passage makes this point, and then we're going to look at just a few of its implications. Notice that James clearly argues that deeds of love, that's our actions, our behaviors, are a non-negotiable part of an authentic life of faith in Christ. Faith and deeds are spiritually inseparable. You can't have one without the other. In verse 14, you notice he asks rhetorically, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? See, life in Christ involves a vibrant inner life and a vibrant outer life. And without question, this principle refers to all kinds of righteous and loving deeds, the way that we forgive others when they wrong us, the way that we take time to commune with God in prayer, the way we conduct our daily work with diligence and care, all kinds of righteous and loving deeds. But James focuses for a moment on the practical care of those around us who lack basic needs. You saw in verse 15 to 16, he says, Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, Go in peace, keep well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? He's telling us that love of neighbor ought to be a corresponding fruit of our true faith our love for God. It's why I'm grateful for our Loving Our Neighbor workshop that the diaconate has been leading this weekend, which Brother Marcus prayed about earlier, keeping our neighbors on our radars, even as James himself does. Right beliefs alone are never enough. They must be accompanied by a life made right. Verse 19, you believe that there is one God? Well, good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. Good theology matters. It does. We need a true understanding of who God is in order to love God truly. We cannot go on loving an imposter God or a God that's really just a figment of our own imagination. Sure, our theology matters, absolutely, but never forget, even demons can recite true points of doctrine. There must be more. And what's wrong with a Christian life that's absent of loving deeds? James is stunningly clear. Deedless faith is dead. Verse 17. In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. I mean, let that really hit you, right? Righteous and loving behavior is not an optional add-on to an otherwise healthy faith. It's a stunning point. What does the absence of good deeds, loving deeds, righteous deeds, humble deeds, 
What does the absence of these deeds in our lives prove? Not that your faith is 90% okay, you just need to fix this minor thing. Not that your faith is operating at 50% effectiveness, half alive. No. The absence of good deeds proves that your faith is dead. It is a faith that is not good but needs better follow-through. It is rather, in the words of commentator Doug Moo, it's a faith that's inherently defective. Faith without deeds is not merely outwardly inoperative, but inwardly dead, which is why verse 14 asks soberly, can such faith save them? Now, having said that, please understand, James is not saying that our good deeds by themselves can save us. That we somehow have the moral ability to earn God's final approval. No, we, we are saved by faith in Christ alone. But as the 16th century reformers would often emphasize, but the faith that saves is never alone. It always bears the fruit of good works. Faith is the root. Our deeds are the fruit of the healthy shrub that is the Christian life. And this is the consistent testimony of Scripture. You know, as Galatians 5, 6 says, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. The Apostle Paul, again, in 1 Corinthians 13, 2, If I have a faith that can move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. Or 1 John 4, 8, Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. And then, of course, there's that most stunning parable, teaching that Jesus conveyed at the end of Matthew's gospel in chapter 25, where Jesus said at the end of time, the king of kings would separate all of humanity and divide them. The sheep from the goat, he says. And on the one side, he would talk to people who did good things, though they did not know that they did them for Christ. And he would turn to the others, pronouncing judgment over them, telling them, that they did not sufficiently bear the fruit of good works. To these he says, depart from me, for I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. So how then are we to understand the proper relationship between faith and deeds, between our belief and our behavior. How do we put it all together? Well, James tells us. He tells us that our deeds prove, demonstrate, express the reality of our faith. Verse 18, show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by my deeds. 
The verb show is usually taken to mean make visible or demonstrate. Our deeds make visible the grace of God implanted in our souls. Our our caring lives make visible the reality of God's care for you that you've taken in by faith. The, The grace of God must find expression, must be demonstrated must be made embodied and visible and alive in the life of those who put their faith in Christ. You see, at the end of time, God isn't going to give each of us a quiz, like a written test on your beliefs. All right, you know, multiple choice questions, sit down. Question number one, who is God? Begin, right? No quiz, written quiz on your beliefs. James is telling us, your whole life is the quiz. God is going to look at our deeds, which will reveal our true beliefs. Our deeds, not our verbal claims, always tell the true story of our hearts. Oh, friends, it's worth pondering this week. What's the story of your heart that your daily deeds are telling, are narrating to your family, to your roommates, to your neighbors, to the world, to God. To help us understand this point in verses 21 through 25, James cites two examples from the Old Testament. The first is the life of Abraham. According to the book of Genesis, Abraham, you may know, was initially a a worshiper of idols. Until one day, God in his kindness came to him and instead of condemning him, told him, Abraham, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to be kind to you in a way that you don't deserve. I'm going to bless you, show you favor, and then through you, the whole world is going to be blessed. A promise of grace And the Bible tells us that the most amazing thing happened. Abraham believed God's promise, put his faith in God. And as verse 23 quotes from Genesis 15, 6, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And this, by the way, is, of course, what distinguishes Christianity from all other religions and life philosophies. That you get right with God, not by earning God's trust in you by all the good things that you do for him. But rather by putting your trust in God through Jesus, who died for your sins and rose to give you life. We're saved not by our moral ability, but rather by putting our faith in God's ability to save us. A completely different orientation than everything else you find in the world apart from the gospel of grace. Abraham's life is a grand illustration of this grace and the beauty of this life of faith that God invites to us in Christ. But James also refers to a second incident in Abraham's life. This one found in Genesis 22. Years later, years later, God gave Abraham a confusing command. A command to sacrifice his only son, Isaac. 
And amazingly, Abraham, his trust in God did not waver. And just as he was about to make the sacrifice in obedience to God's command, God stopped him. And he said, do not lay a hand on the boy. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And referring to this moment in Abraham's life, James says in verse 22, you see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. See, Abraham was saved by his faith earlier in his life, but the reality of Abraham's faith was fully expressed in his obedient deeds. God's promise was established when Abraham first believed he was loved and accepted as righteous in God's sight, but that promise was then fulfilled and confirmed when Abraham lived good deeds. James also then refers to the story of Rahab that's found in Joshua True to make a similar point. Rahab, a a prostitute who lived in the town of Jericho, she helped the spies of Israel. She hid them, helped them escape, showing loyalty to God more than loyalty to her own wicked nation. And because of this, we're told in verse 25, she, like Abraham, was considered righteous for what she did. Her faith was confirmed, was revealed, was fulfilled by her deeds in hiding and rescuing and delivering the spies of Israel. So with these two examples, James's point is to say that our deeds show and demonstrate our faith. Faith and deeds, friends, are part of an interdependent, integrated whole in our lives before God. And so he underscores the conclusion once again in verse 25, as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. You see, friends, because here's the lesson again, a living faith always sprouts loving deeds. So what does this mean for us? What are some implications, applications to close our time together? We need to understand firstly that true Christian spirituality nurtures both the inner life and the outer life. Both our faith and our deeds as essential parts of our life before God. See, it's true as we grow and as we walk with Christ, whether if you're just beginning your journey or if you have walked with Christ for a long time. It's true we must nurture our faith. But we must also be sure to put that faith into practice. And so whenever we take time to read the Bible, for example, whether personally or communally, maybe in your life group, neighborhood group, mom's group. We need to push ourselves to grow in faith and also always push ourselves to grow in deeds. 
where you're asking always, what do we learn in this Bible study, this passage that we're examining? What do we learn about the character and the promises of God here? You know, that's a crucial question we must always ask, growing in our faith. But we must not stop there. We also need to ask, what kind of life change, what kind of new behavior should be produced in us precisely because we believe these things about God's promises and his character. We must apply the grace of God not only to our belief, but also to our deeds, our life of good deeds. You see, Christianity is not just about signing on to a few core beliefs about God and about life. It's about bringing our whole lives, body and soul, into conformity with Christ. You see, the story of the Bible is that God himself is a God of action, a God who moves, a God who rescues, a God who saves, a God who loves in real time, in real space, in the details of your lives, in your kitchens, in your bedroom, in your workplaces, in your neighborhoods. A God who does love and does rescue and does life and does truth and does resurrection again and again and again. I mean, thank God that the God of the Bible is not just a God of words, but a God of deeds. And so he's simply here calling us to become more like him. It's a joy, therefore, to be brought into the fullness of the God of both words and of deeds. And secondly, and relatedly, I think this should impact how we define and measure spiritual health and spiritual maturity, both for ourselves and for our friends. Let me put it to you this way. We, you and I, we must not be quick to count ourselves too quickly as spiritually mature simply because we know a lot of things about God. Because you can rattle off a lot of theology or because you took a couple of classes or maybe because you have a couple of degrees. You see, if you embrace the beliefs of the gospel, James tells us, but your life is absent of the deeds of the gospel, then you cannot judge yourself to be spiritually mature. And of course, one of the best ways to get a, a real read on the health of your faith is to see and examine how we treat our neighbors. Isn't that what James says? It might be a wake-up call for some of us, but see it as an invitation of God's grace. You say you believe in God's forgiveness, but if your relationships are always full of conflict, no deeds of forgiveness can be found, then you still have a ways to go in being formed in Christ. Maybe you can recite the Apostles' Creed by heart. This summary of Christian beliefs held by Christians globally across countless nations and cultures, but if you struggle to befriend people across ethnic difference, you may not be as spiritually healthy or mature as you at first thought. And you might actually have a lot to learn from a person 
who may know fewer things theologically, but know how to express what they do know of God practically, learning a lot from their deeds. Ways that they are actually practically more mature than you or I might be. James is calling us to esteem not only the importance of orthodoxy, right beliefs, but also see the central place, the crucial place of what is called orthopraxy, right behavior and living. And we need to beware of an unhealthy disjunct between these two. We must take seriously contradictions between belief and behavior in the Christian life. Uh, we, we must not sanctify hypocrisy, by which I don't mean that a Christian should never make mistakes. Of course, Christians, in fact, should be the first people to acknowledge their sins and to turn from them. It's not about not making mistakes. What I mean by hypocrisy is sort of shrugging at flagrant contradictions between one's faith and one's practice, one's inner life and one's outer life. We must be restless before these hypocrisies. We must grasp better what theologian Francis Schaeffer once said so helpfully, so penetratingly. Biblical orthodoxy without compassion is surely the ugliest thing in the world. We must not extol correct theology and right belief that is not backed up and expressed by right and loving and compassionate behavior lest we contradict the power of God to change both. Biblical orthodoxy without compassion is surely the ugliest thing in the world. So often our emphasis in so much of our life is just on being right. James's emphasis is on being complete. Not only right about our beliefs, but complete in the way that those right beliefs also get expressed in right behavior. Thirdly, this of course touches on the importance of how this relates to our witness before the world and to our neighbors. Oh, friends, don't you know that it's hypocrisy that stands out most to so many, maybe to you if you're here today, still skeptical about Christian claims, Christian people, the hypocrisy of the church publicly, privately, which undermines the integrity of our witness, of our public faith, as teacher and speaker Brendan Manning some time ago now said provocatively, the greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips, walk out the door and deny him by their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. This is a generation, you know, that longs to see faith paired with authentic deeds, that longs to see integrity and completeness of life, that longs to see you and me believe and do and do and believe. Again, this is, friends, an invitation into the fullness of the life of God and a calling for you and me to radiate with the fullness of the life of the Spirit. 
so that we don't have the life of God compartmentalized into one little narrow area of life called beliefs or my head, as it were, but rather that you would let God and his grace to be installed out from your soul to the corners and the tips of your fingers, every corner of your life. And that, my friends, is beautiful for you and me to see the beauty of God radiating from each of us, head to toe. And how can that happen? How then can that happen where we have integrity of faith and deed? Well, the crucial thing that we must do is to plant deep roots of faith in the love of Jesus. You see, it's our faith, in fact, that animates and empowers our deeds. We must remember the good news of God's grace. This good news of Jesus who died for, yes, all our sins and hypocrisies. Jesus who died for our dead faith to give us new faith. Died for our dead deeds to give us a life of true deeds. Christ who died for our justification, that is, our being counted righteous in God's sight, which James mentioned again and again in the life of Abraham, the life of Rahab. And that's God's promise that when you are in Christ, he now looks upon you. And despite the filth of your actual lives, he will always see you as his beloved. He will always see you as approved. He will always see you as perfectly righteous in his sight and will always treat you as if you had lived perfectly the very life of Jesus itself. God invites you into this life of justification so that you can live with freedom, my friends, knowing that there's nothing that you can do to make God love you more or approve you better. And there's nothing that you can do in your failures to make him love you less or to count you unworthy. So perfect and unchanging is God's love for you and me, and not only does he count us as righteous, he brings us into his family. And as he did with Abraham, we're told in verse 23, and he was called God's friend, beloved. The grace of the gospel is this you're not just a freed, convicted sinner, you can be called the friend of God. You can be brought into the intimate places of the heart of God. This is language drawn from Isaiah 41.8 where God addresses his people as descendants of Abraham, my friend. A stunning promise that Jesus himself repeats in John 15 verse 15. I have called you friend. See, friend, when you take these gospel truths into your heart and you know that your sins are forgiven and you know that you have the unchanging acceptance and approval of God, and you know that you have the love of God that calls you and makes you his friend, then our hearts, our lives become filled and fueled and even flooded with the love of God in a way where you start to become more like him, loved by him and beginning now to love like him, doing the deeds of Christ 
because you've been transformed by your faith, by the love of Christ. So what are you drinking in? What are you taking in? What have you seen by faith of the love of God? That's the operative question here. And will you abide yourself in the love of Jesus? Again, because our faith in Christ is what animates and empowers our deeds. You're saying all throughout the sermon, yes, okay, yes, I get it. Faith and deeds together, we need both. And faith without deeds is dead, yes. But how then? Deeds? Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you. And plug yourself in into the flood and the fountain of his love. And friends, you will find the mystery and the power of God's spirit, Christ's love, pushing through your life from your heart all the way to the tips of your fingers as you love those in need, as you walk with neighbor and roommate, as you do this in the workplace, as you care for people around you, as you lift palms up your hands in gratitude to God, living a life of thanksgiving and laughter and joy. Dear friends, this is an attractive invitation. This is an attractive call to life in Christ. Earlier today, as my daughter peeked over and saw what I was preparing and giving these words to you, uh, she saw my opening illustration and she enthusiastically informed me that the little shrub had become, begun to come back to life. Dad, the plant grew back, she told me. I didn't know, hadn't gotten the news. New little purple flowers had begun to sprout. It's a little picture, perhaps of new life that God sprouts, even among us that maybe have lived a little bit wilted lately, uh, maybe a little bit short on empowered deeds of love, maybe now feeling called, don't you know God is in the business of resurrection? God is, is in the work of giving new life to dead and shriveled things. Will you open up your life and allow him to bring new sprouts into your life? Because a living faith always sprouts loving deeds. Thanks be to God for a living Savior who loves us and gives us life. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you so much for the fountain of your love that we sang about earlier. The flood of your compassion that changes us and makes us want to be like you, doing the deeds of Jesus. Loving like you loved us. Forgiving like you forgived us. Caring like you have cared for us. Bearing one another's burdens like you have bared us. Make us people of deep belief. Deep belief in the grace of God. And deep deeds. Powerful deeds. The deeds of of Jesus. Do this in our midst, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.